This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school, on the other side of the ocean. Yet, you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Well, you're listening to Michael Easley in context, and that is a different way for us to start our show. (laughs) (laughs) Young Greta Thunberg expressing her opinions on global warming and climate change and all the greenhouse gas devastations that are occurring. So, yeah, she's all over the news. I think she just turned 15 years of age. She has 8.2 million followers on Instagram. So I remember it was probably... Gosh, could it have been two months ago now that you brought her up to me and you said, hey, what do you think about all this crazy Greta Thornburg? And I said, Greta who? <laughs> Uh, I don't know, Dad. I'm raising two boys under two. I've got my head in the sand when it comes to a lot of current events today. So fill us all in. Take us back to when she first started hitting the news and what's going on with her and why are we here? Well, let's back up a little even further than Greta. Okay. uh, Because when I hear Greta, I I think of a former newscaster, but that's how old I am. Sure. Uh, Greenhouse gases, climate change, global footprint, carbon footprint, carbon dioxide. uh, The planet is getting warmer. The oceans are evaporating. The icebergs are shrinking. I mean, we have now for how many years been hearing this rhetoric and the news on my personal Facebook account would post things from time to time and people would just jump all over me for being a climate denier Mm -hmm. and so when Greta came to popularity I was looking at a picture on her Instagram and she has a a logo on her fleece that says unite behind the science So this is the common, I hate the phrase, but it's a narrative of climate change and global warming. And when Greta made the sort of the splash and 8 million people start following her, she speaks at the United Nations, for goodness sakes. uh, I thought, you know, we need to talk about this on In Context because Christians are always uh, caught in the middle on this. We don't want to be climate deniers. We're afraid to speak out. On the other hand, are there measurable, reasonable things that can be done? within our environment as believers as we are stewards of what God has given us. So, to that end, I asked you to help me put this together, and we've brought three subject matter experts to the broadcast. So, Dad, help me out, because I think as an older millennial, an elder millennial, if you will, I'm not quite sure what camp to believe, because I feel like both sides, you have scientific data that's showing there is climate change, the globe is warming, all these things. And then you swing to the other side where there are specifically Christian leaders saying that that science is bogus. So, I mean, where am I even supposed to start? Who do I believe? What's going on even in that tension? Let's begin with science as a philosophy, as a grid, as a function of measurement. Um, and we can go back to some of these laws that we all learned when we were in you know, elementary school, high school. But one of the things about science is a repeatable occurrence. So if we're going to measure the speed of light, 
Uh, and again, there are going to be people listening to this that are going to be <laughs> happy with the way I define this. But we're going to say light travels at 299,792,458 meters per second or 671 million miles per hour if we want to use our U.S. measurements. Um, so what we do is we measure the time it takes from light to go to point A to point B. Sure. And so it's repeatable. It can be measured. The problem with any type of scientific formula is what you're measuring in what context. Now, global climate, uh, global change, there are all kinds of theories out there, and there is no universal agreement. Now, those who like to agree with X obviously are going to rally around that constituency and say the Earth is warming. Those who say, well, wait a minute, science doesn't tell us that precisely. It does tell us this. So it, to me, it's illustrative as a Christian. Don't, number one, believe what's on the news just because some reporter is telling you this to do a little homework. And one of the reasons we went to these three subject matter experts are these people are not uneducated. They're not simply knee-jerk reacting, saying that's a left agenda or that's a green sustainable agenda. Let's talk about it from a scientific standpoint. And there are good theories that argue a 30- or 60-year cycle that the Earth has warmed and cooled, warmed and cooled. Mm -hmm. and, and just for the record, weather is not the same as climate. Right. So just because we have a colder winter or a warmer right. summer does not mean global warming is, is happening. That's just a weather pattern. And again, we're going to talk to people a whole lot smarter than me in this arena. But I'm thrilled that we have three people. Dr. James Tour, who is a Rice University scientist. And uh, our interview with James was astonishing. Mind-blowing. Uh, Mind-blowing. <laughs> this guy, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a third grader talking to Einstein, talking to Dr. Tour. Then we have Ron Rhodes, who is my dear friend and a brilliant man in current issues. And Ron can bring some of this down to what I call the 12th grade mind, so the rest of us can understand mm -hmm. things. And then we have E. Calvin Beisner. And Dr. Beisner the, leads the Cornwall Alliance, which is a stewardship emphasis. So let's be good stewards of God's creation. Let's understand uh, what man's affect is. And there's some big language in this nomenclature, the language people use to talk about these things. But how does man impact the globe? I mean, you've heard in news, probably even raising two boys, mm -hmm. you've heard that we shouldn't have so many cows. We shouldn't yes. have so many people. Yes. That we should have batteries in our cars instead of use fossil fuels. Right. Well, some of this can be explained pretty simply. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Dr. Tour explains to us about the joke of batteries mm -hmm. and electric cars, it's a complete travesty. Yeah. But it takes someone to back off the rhetoric of sustainability and green and love in the environment. And this poor young teenage girl, Greta, who just says things off the cuff and people applaud her and they're going to nominate her for the Nobel Peace Prize. Even Prince Harry is out there praising Greta Thunberg. So I thought this was an important issue that can get spun up really quickly with people that don't know anything they're talking about, me included. So I wanted to go to some experts to help us out on In Context, who obviously come from a Christian worldview, mm -hmm. but are a lot smarter in this area. And just as our axiom always is, don't let the world teach you theology. And this is a great opportunity to think critically about what are we really doing to our environment and what can we do? I mean, I don't want my grandchildren drinking polluted water. Right. I don't want there to be, uh, if there is a carbon 
affect in the environment that's detrimental to health, then what can we do about that? Yeah. And as we talked to James Tour, which was so fascinating because he went uh, into some explanations and I threw two words at him, India and China. Mm-hmm. And his answer was delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to listen to the broadcast. But you can do all that you want to do in America and you could get the UK involved. But when you're talking about two of the largest population groups on the planet and changing human behavior, this is a lot of rhetoric and a lot of fever pitch. Um, and so anyway, we'll have some fun with these interviews, and I think it'll be helpful to people to think more critically. I, I know I know it'll be helpful to think more critically about what you're hearing in the media, what is real, what's made up, and where there are some issues that we need to be aware. Dr. James Tour is a synthetic organic chemist. He is presently the TT and WF Chow Professor of Chemistry professor of computer science and professor of materials science and nano engineering at the Center for Nanoscale Science and Technology at Rice University. Dr. Tour has about 650 research publications and growing. He has over 200 patents to his name. Based on the impact of his work in 2019, Dr. Tour was ranked in the top 0.004% of seven million scientists who have published at least five papers in their careers. He was inducted into the National Academy of Inventors in 2015. Dr. Tour was named among, quote, the 50 most influential scientists in the world today, close quote, by the bestschools.org in 2014. He is listed in the world's most influential scientific minds by Thomas Reuters, Science Watch, and on and on and on we could go. Dr. Tour, thanks for joining us on our broadcast. Thank you. Wow, what a pedigree. Well, I wish my wife were listening to that. (laughs) Don't we all, yeah. Take out the trash, James, right? That's right. (laughs) Hey, let's jump right into this because um, this is an area where, you know, I know enough to not even be dangerous. Greta Thurnberg has thrown some interesting things on the wall, and we have a country that is focused on sustainability and on climate change, and we need to reduce the number of cattle and livestock, and on and on we could go. Help us, help me. Where do we start in this discussion with climate change, with what is true, and how we, as believers... How we have a civil conversation without being vilified or look like we're idiots or look like we don't care about the environment? Uh, as far as climate change, you know, things are definitely warming up. The amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is definitely increasing. The question is, how much is the human contribution versus just natural events that are outside of our control anyway? So that's where the question is. There is newer work that is looking more and more conclusive that human contribution is significant, that that it's not an insignificant number. So the way I look at this is that the way the culture is going, the way society is going, CO2 in the atmosphere is something that we're going to have to deal with. Whether we like it or not, we're going to have to deal with it because it's certainly a political football and something that has to be addressed. 
And the data is showing that humans are having a significant contribution. And so is there some way that we can use technology without killing our economy? That's the way I like to address this. If we can reduce our CO2 emission without killing our economy, that would be great. Uh, we would certainly address the political football, and we may well address an environmental problem as well. I think we're going to have to address it, whether we believe that it's an anthropogenic problem or not. We're going to have to address this. And there is technology to address this. I don't think that anything that I've seen put on the table by any politicians are going to work because I don't think they've put anything on the table other than phasing out fossil fuels and going to renewable energies, but they've never crunched the numbers to show that the numbers just don't work. Batteries are not the solution because batteries are just an energy transfer medium. They don't, they're not a source of energy. You, you need a source of energy to then convert to a fuel, the fuel you can put in a bottle and use it. The electricity in a battery can be a fuel, but that electricity had to come from somewhere. From somewhere, yeah. Yeah, and so then the question is, where does it come from? So I, I can get as detailed as you like, but I think it's something that we're going to have to address, even if we don't like it. There's a lot of things in life we've got to do. We're looking at China and India as the single larger human contribution, to say it in layman's terms. Yes. Let's just say America does some reasonable things. We, we are more conscientious. And, and listen, I'm all for cleaner water and cleaner streams and runoffs and, and so and more efficient use of fuel. But you're looking at population basis of, of millions of people, billions of people that are economically oppressed. They don't have any ability to affect this. Their governments certainly will not. So are we, you know, putting out California fires with a squirt gun? Right. So I think that that's, the U.S. is actually doing extremely well. We are the only country that has really significantly reduced our CO2 emission better than what was in the Paris Accords, and we pulled out of it. And the countries that are in it haven't addressed it like we have. And that's been addressed because of a technology shift. We've gone away from coal and we've gone to natural gas. So we have a lot less CO2 emissions than we used to. And so the U.S. is doing really well. So your question is, does it really matter? Because China and India are blowing this stuff out into the air big time. Yes, there's the elephant in the room right there. So even if U.S. were to totally tank its economy by wiping out fossil fuels, it's not going to do a whole lot for the earth because we need to address this in the third world. And I, I have a better solution. I mean, so you, you can ask away, but nope, I already know to how to solve this. <laughs> okay. <Art> okay. So-, <laughs> so wind and solar isn't going to do it. We work on a lot of alternative energies in my group, so I love them. We, we I have a battery company that I've started. We make batteries. We make uh, fuel cells, uh, uh, supercapacitors, lots of things. That's not going to solve the energy problem. Germany tried this. You fly over Germany, it's a country full of windmills. They have lots of windmills, they have solar. They did away with their fossil fuels, they did away with their nuclear, and now what are they doing? They're building a pipeline to Russia because it doesn't work. The numbers aren't there. And so the Democrats had a town hall. All they did was complain about President Trump without offering a single solution. 
All right, so here's the solution. You can use fossil fuels with zero CO2 emissions. I will say that again. You can use fossil fuels with zero CO2 emissions. Fossil fuels are God's gift to humanity. Out of a 14-inch hole in the ground comes an enormous amount of energy, enormous amount, much more, much more than just a bunch of windmills. And, and uh, we have traditionally combusted that, so we convert the, the, say, methane, CH4, to CO2 in water, and that would yield for us about 800 kilojoules per mole of energy. And that's a lot of energy. But now we're learning that you can't just be blowing CO2 into the atmosphere anymore like we've been doing for 100 years or 200 years, if you want to consider coal along with that. You can't do that anymore. Just like we learned, we can't just dump everything we want to in the oceans. We used to do that, thinking that, that it, nothing's going to be a problem because the solution to pollution is dilution. And then we learned we can't do that anymore. And so we're learning we can't do that with our atmosphere anymore. So there is a way, there is technology to do this, and that's to take the methane, the CH4, you, you strip the hydrogens off it to make hydrogen gas and carbon as a solid, and then you take that hydrogen gas and you put it into a fuel cell, you run off of oxygen from the air, and you only generate water. So your only byproduct now is water. There's no more CO2. The amount of energy coming out of that is about 400 kilojoules per mole. For, so about half the amount of energy comes out when you have zero CO2 emission. But you get a lot of that back because a fuel cell is about 80% efficient, whereas a car running on combustion in, in town is about 25% efficient. On the highways, about 35 to 40% efficient. So even though the thermodynamic numbers are about half, you get a lot of that back. The question is, what are you going to do with the 8 billion tons of carbon that you form because we throw 30 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere right now? And there's new technology that's been developed for converting that carbon into graphene inexpensively, uh, so making it into a high-value material that can go into concrete and all sorts of building platforms, and also for storing hydrogen in large amounts. So let me distill this down for you so that people would understand what I'm saying. Technology will allow us to solve this problem, and we can still use fossil fuels, but with no CO2 emissions. And if you want to try to come up with something cleaner than fossil fuels without CO2 emissions, good luck. See what it's like to deal with solar panels when you have to ultimately end up getting rid of them. See about the environmental footprint that occurs when you have windmills all over the place. And even if you had those, it doesn't solve the numbers. The numbers, the generation numbers just aren't there. So we're gonna to have to think of a solution. Or what you can do is you can build a thousand new nuclear plants in the United States and nobody wants a nuclear plant in their backyard. So the only thing that's gonna solve this is running fossil fuels with zero CO2 emission. Now, I remember Boone Powell, who was a fine Texas oilman, and I remember him a number of years ago appearing on uh, MSNBC Joe Scarborough in the morning. And this was, of course, this was early when windmills and hydropower and some of these oceanic devices, they're trying to figure out how to get energy from waves. And he made the comment, I've lost more money than anybody on wind and solar, and it doesn't work. <laughs> So for the layman's point of view, he was saying this 20 years ago, that you can't do this. But we've got a political culture where we have a teenage girl 
who comes over and yells and screams and says the earth is going to be destroyed in 10 years if we don't do some non-existent plan. But you're saying there are ways to do it. So what's the resistance, Stock? Well, I don't think there's a whole lot of resistance. It's just a matter of educating people. I, I never met this teenage girl, so I'm not sure who you're talking about. But generally, in my lab, we don't listen to teenage girls. Um, we just go ahead <laughs> how, and how do our work. How politically incorrect. I mean, goodness gracious. <laughs> no, I, 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 they, they've never come in and, and given us any information on how to run our lab better uh, or how to do what we're doing better. So generally, they, they need to have an advanced education to be able to, to understand and keep pace with us. So... I'm not sure who you're talking about, but what we've got here is we've got solutions to these sorts of problems. And then the fossil fuels eventually will find a better solution to this. I mean, technology can solve these problems. And so I'm a big believer in this and we just do it. I mean, we're just going to do this and we're going to publish our papers. And I'm tired of chasing around politicians saying, hey, look at this, look at this. I don't do that anymore. We'll just publish good papers and they'll eventually come to us. You mentioned the economics of it. Is it that expensive to introduce the technology before it's produced in larger scale? Yeah, there's an expense in this a whole lot less than what they're talking about for reconfiguring our country uh, with no CO2 emissions, a whole lot less. But the expense comes in because you're no longer running combustion engines, which is what all our cars are and so much of our heating systems run on that, heating and cooling systems. We're no longer running combustion engines. We're running fuel cells. So yeah, there's a huge upfront cost, but it's something that's doable. So there are two major oil companies. One is already committed to partnering with Rice University to do this, and another and a second one. And that these two big oil companies would work together is a miracle in itself. But they're going to work together because they see that This is going to be a huge change in the way that we're going to process and deliver energy. But they see this as the only viable way. And you say, oil companies? Yeah, big oil is going to take the lead in this of of, uh, having zero CO2 emission with the use of fossil fuels. So, I mean, they're very interested in this. Big oil has been really interested in energy. But you've got to look at the numbers, and the numbers just tell you that the renewables, as we're able to do them now, do not solve this. And you can come up with laws that by such and such year, all cars are going to have to be electric. That's fine. But did you know that our entire grid is going to shut down? Our electrical grid was never made to run all our cars and to charge them up. So you'll have no more lights in your house because our electrical grid will go down and it'll crash if you try to charge up cars, if you replace all cars. So these things have to come gradually. And, uh, uh, but there are ways to do this without, without becoming crazy. So without the advanced education, help us. When we talk about, you know, I work with some younger men and women, and they're all into the Tesla, into the Prius. And I go, look, when you plug that vehicle in, you're not really doing anything advantageous over combustible fuel in a car. Because there's probably a coal plant somewhere fueling that power grid. Am I wrong? No, you're correct if, if you're talking about the Northeast. The Northeast is still running heavily on coal. Uh, around here in Texas, it's all natural gas, so you're burning natural gas. But you're right in the sense that a Tesla is just a long tailpipe back to the power plant. But it is cleaner. We can burn natural gas at a power plant cleaner than we can burn it in a car. So, yes, they're still blowing out CO2 in the process, but not as much 
Number one, it just depends on how far that, that electricity has had to travel to their house. Plus, I think in Houston, a portion of our electricity is coming from wind. I don't know what it is, but it's something on the order of 15%. So there you get a little bit of that. But the, the, the problem with the battery-powered cars is you spent a lot making those batteries. A lot of energy went into making the batteries. Right. So if you add in the energy that was used to mine the lithium, and the lithium is mined, for example, in Bolivia, and then you take that lithium and you purify it, a lot of energy, then you take it and you ship it to Japan where the batteries might be made, and then you make these batteries, and then you ship those batteries on a ship to the United States to put those into a car. You look at it, and depending on the electric vehicle, now we crunched some numbers for the, the Nissan LEAF a number of years ago, and you had to use that car, you had to use the batteries for 30,000 miles of use in the car, 30,000 miles before you broke even on the amount of energy that was used to make those batteries. So for the first 30,000 miles of driving that car, don't feel good about saving the world's <laughs> energy. Don't feel good about it because you've already expended it to make the batteries. That's the problem. When you do the life cycle calculations, most of these things don't look nearly as attractive as you might think. So let's talk about the LEAF, because here in Nashville, where we live, is the Nissan headquarters, and they overproduced the LEAF. They couldn't sell them. The limitations of the vehicle, the complications, so they come in, the government subsidizes these charging stations in Cracker Barrels and Kohl's department stores and here, there, and yonder at taxpayer money. So there was energy and time involved in constructing those, and then they couldn't give the cars away. They actually came in with a program to say, all right, well, for $149, you can lease the car, and for the first three years, you don't pay any interest on your lease, and then we'll put a charging station in your home at no cost, and if you give the car back, you can keep the charging station. And they still didn't well, work. Somebody's paying for that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and did it work? Yeah. They couldn't give the cars so away. we could have told them this to begin with. <laughs> I mean, our institute here, we crunched the numbers on ethanol and fuel. We told them it's not going to work. You put the ethanol, you want to grow corn and put ethanol in fuel and act as if you're saving things and now compete with food supply. And the venture capitalists still put in money and they lost a ton of money on those deals. So these numbers can be calculated before you even get started. Well, and you are correct not to be condescending that we're dealing with a political and a social and a popular to talk about sustainability and green and eliminating fossil fuels. But when you come not only to the economics, but to the feasibility of these changes. So let's say in a perfect microcosm, you can with these two oil companies and some new technologies, the way a combustion engine will become a battery What's the downside? We've got to deal with those spent fuel cells, right? The nickel cadmium batteries that are in your car, your normal combustion engine car, the 12 volt battery, those are recycled extremely well, extremely well. Like 99% of that is recycled. If you look at lithium ion batteries, almost none of that is recycled well. Yeah, you can put it back in, but it's very little recycled use of that lithium. 
And so all these batteries become a real problem. And you say, well, no, they get recycled. Well, they really don't get recycled well. The amount of energy to pull that lithium back out and to recycle it, it's not recycled easily. And if you look at the real numbers on this, that's not to say that it can't get better, but it's not good now. And that's why, you know, this whole feel-good thing, because I'm using an electric vehicle, you really don't deserve to feel that good about it just yet. <laughs> All of these numbers can be crunched before you even get started. So what's the downside using fossil fuels with no CO2 emission? The downside would be is that we have to change the fuel cells away from combustion engines. And that's a lot of transitioning over time, a lot of transitioning. And then it's dealing with the carbon that's there, but we know how to do it. I mean, the technology is there to do it, but it can be done. So we're going to have to to gradually address this. But let's get back to your other problem that you had mentioned. You got to get China and India to buy into this or else it's just a waste. So, for example, all of these plastic, if you look at the plastic mess, the U.S. does pretty good. We don't have much mismanagement of plastic at all. It's all coming out of Asia and the oceans are just swamped with plastic all coming out of Asia because they just throw it in the rivers and it ends up in, in the Pacific Ocean. And there's these huge regions called the plastic vortex in the Pacific. We're just full of plastic all from Asia. And you can track it because you can pick up the piece of plastic and you can see the place where the plastic came from. And so unless you get these places to deal with these problems, then the U.S. isn't going to be able to change the world by itself. So let's just be very pragmatic. I mean, we can't get a proper market agreements and simple things that would say, okay, economically, this is a win-win. How are you going to change the sheer population base? I guess it starts with the governments, but the scientific communities also have to have the cachet in China and India to say, we have to change the way we're doing this. I, I was in India a year and a half ago for a week. Wonderful people the nicest people in the world, but I never saw the sun. I mean, yeah. it was light. I never saw the sun yeah. because there was so much smog in the air. You could tell it was daytime. You could tell it was nighttime. But in the daytime, I could never see the sun. You never saw the clouds. It's just, 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 just haze over you. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. Um, Los Angeles used to be like that in the 1970s. Yes. But we figured out how to deal with it. So there is technology to deal with it. But other governments are going to have to come along, and there's a whole lot more population in Asia and India than there is in the United States by a lot. So the science is there. The technology is there. We don't know how quite to uh, address human behavior. So give us some help, Doc. I mean, it's exciting to hear you say there are some proven solutions to these things. You can run numbers. You can show trials. I would use the illustration. You could do a trial to show it works. But to help us beyond that, I mean, so you'll just continue cranking out research and, and demonstrating that it's right and hoping that somebody can take the baton to the... No, I uh, think they will. I mean, the, the industries are listening to this. It's not a voice crying in the wilderness. The industries are paying attention. They're helping to drive this thing. And the, this is big energy companies. They have the ability to really do a lot here. So I, I think we're going to be all right. I think at some point some politicians are going to say... None of this is real, and they're going to start looking for real solutions, and uh, things will happen. I mean, I, I'm optimistic. That's just kind of the way I live my life. Dr. James Tour, who's 
currently teaching at the Rice University. We'll have information about him in our show notes, but if you put drjamestour.com in your browser, you will land at a great page of his sites where he is involved on social media, some of his papers, and to learn more about him. Well, thanks again for your time and blessings on your work and your family and ministry, and we're just happy to have you on. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you so much. It is my delight to have Dr. E. Calvin Beisner on the broadcast today. Dr. Beisner, also known as Cal, is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a network of 60-plus Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars who are have a biblical earth view, let's say, a biblical worldview. They're concerned about the economic development for the poor, proclamation of the gospel and uh, they have a different take on some things than we might normally hear as we started our broadcast miss uh, young miss greta thunberg has launched this discussion into a uh, very interesting uh, fever pitch she has 8.2 million followers on instagram it's astonishing what this little teenager has done so what we wanted to do with the in context broadcast is bring some uh, people that have a lot more knowledge base than i do to chat about climate change, about global warming, what is and isn't real, what's of concern. And so uh, Dr. Beisner came to the top of the list. So, uh, Cal, thanks for joining us today. Well, Michael, thanks very much. Uh, very glad to be with you. So let's get a little bit of your background for folks that don't know you. And in our show notes, we'll have a link to the Cornwall Alliance page so they'll be uh, more familiar with what you all are doing, but how in the world did you get from uh, where you are, uh, where you started, <laughs> to where you are now, working with uh, environment and stewardship? Well, actually, in one sense, we can go all the way back to my toddlerhood when I lived for a year in Calcutta, India, while my father was with the U.S. State Department. There, I witnessed firsthand two things that Uh, really came back to make better sense to me or to come into focus for me much later in life. One was the great beauty of God's creation. Um, You know, this was a subtropical uh, region, and there was just wonderful beauty of trees and other plants and flowers and the like that I saw on an everyday basis where we lived. But the other was that every day I had to be taken from my parents' home to the home of an Indian family where I would spend the day. We were out very early in the morning for this, my ayah, or nurse, and I, and we would walk down a number of blocks, and all along the way, I would be stepping over the bodies of people who had died of starvation and disease overnight. Both of those things, the beauty of the world surrounding me and the horrors of such poverty, uh, stayed with me. They are permanent uh, fixtures in my, my mind's memory. When later I became a Christian and... For the first decade or so after that, I focused most of my my life on personal evangelism and on learning theology and apologetics to serve that personal evangelism. Uh, Eventually, I encountered uh, those who were saying, look, the Bible says a lot more than just simply the salvation of souls. It says that we should be concerned about uh, other things, too, like lifting people out of poverty, like taking good care of the planet and things like that. So I began studying that a lot in the 1980s, and that eventually led to my writing several books in the field and to my uh, being asked to teach, first at Covenant College, then at Knox Theological Seminary, 
And eventually all of that led <laughs> to my starting the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation back in 2005. There's an awful lot of detail that I skipped over there, but <laughs> that's the quickie tour. Okay, Cal, talk to us about climate change in, in broad strokes. What do we mean, what do we hear when we hear climate change? Well, in, in popular parlance nowadays, climate change typically denotes dangerous man-made global warming. Now, that's not typically spelled out because for about the last 20 years, uh, global warming has, if it has occurred at all, occurred so much more slowly than what the predictions were that it's become kind of an embarrassment. So we use climate change now typically instead of global warming to refer to that. And also, we, we can't be sure that all of it is man-made. But I, I think the really interesting questions are not whether global warming is real or even whether human activity contributes to it. I, I think both of those, I, I certainly answer with a, a resounding yes. Uh, and so do all the so-called climate skeptics that I know, and I know most of the big ones all around the world. Rather, the interesting questions are, what are the causes of global warming? What is the magnitude of global warming from those causes? And what would be the benefits and the harms of our attempting to reduce global warming? I think those are the, the really critically important questions. And unfortunately, they tend to get ignored in most public discourse. So let's talk about the causes and the magnitude. Okay. Uh, magnitude. Uh, what we can say with, I think, very good confidence is that global average temperature has risen by something in the neighborhood of 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius since about 1850 or 1880, something you know, sometime in that range. Um, that, by the way, is absolutely undetectable in terms of what anybody feels. Uh, we can probably feel the difference between uh, 70 and 71 degrees in a room, but for global average temperature, nobody experiences global average, average temperature. The important temperature for anybody and any ecosystem is the temperature right where it is. Uh, it's about 70 degrees in the room where I'm talking right now. It's about 50 degrees outside my window, uh, about four inches away from me. I'm comfortable where I am. I wouldn't be comfortable out there without <laughs> thicker clothing on than I have right now. So global average temperature actually is fairly irrelevant unless it can drive significant changes in in the, the local temperatures that are the really important things. And interesting enough, uh, it seems that for the most part, it doesn't drive uh, interesting changes in local temperature. But anyway, as far as global warming is concerned, what we've seen so far over the last 150 years or so, it's about 1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius. Uh, does, does human activity contribute to it? I, I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. And the reason for that is pretty much basic physics. As we burn fossil fuels, we add into the atmosphere carbon dioxide, and from some of our other activities, we add other so-called greenhouse gases. More proper term for these is infrared absorbing gases. These molecules absorb heat as it bounces from the surface of the Earth back out towards space, and then they re-radiate that, some of it back you know, on out to space, but some of it back toward the surface of the Earth. The result, uh, basic physics tells us, will be that the, the surface of the Earth will be a bit warmer than it otherwise would be. That's basic physics. 
But basic physics also tells us that if you drop a rock and a feather at the same moment from the same height, they're going to hit the ground at the same moment. Unless, of course, they're in air, <laughs> in which case, yeah, the, the rock plummets and the feather kind of wafts down slowly, uh, wafting back and forth. Or if it's really windy, it might blow up into a tree and never come down. So the world is a whole lot more complicated than basic physics. And to answer the question, how much warmer do we make the world by adding CO2 to the atmosphere, you have to do a lot of very complex physics, chemistry, and uh, frankly, real world observation. The computer models on which people who are alarmed about global warming depend for their alarm, uh, predict roughly two to three times as much warming as we've actually observed mm. over the relevant period. And since a, a basic rule of science is that you must always test theories by comparison with real world observations, what that tells us is that the models are wrong. And if the models are wrong, they give us no rational basis for any predictions of future temperature, and therefore also no rational basis for any policy predicated on those predictions. So what can we say instead about how much warming comes? Well, the best empirical investigations of this, as distinct from totally modeling investigations, uh, seem to be pointing to an answer like this. For every time that we would double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we should probably expect something in the neighborhood of mm, a quarter of a degree to 1.75 degrees uh, Celsius increase in global average temperature. That's instead of the range that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses from its computer models of one and a half to four and a half degrees Celsius. Well, absolutely nobody thinks that uh, 0.25 to 1.75 degrees would be dangerous. And in fact, most of the studies indicate that the, the benefits of that would far exceed the costs of it. When we talk about these cycles, and, and I remember reading, of course, this is not my field, but I remember reading years ago an article about these 30 and 60 year cycles that mm -hmm. the globe has in fact risen and fallen in a cyclical fashion over time. And there's yes. even some debate about, is it the human footprint or not? Certainly, we know that through geologic history, we've seen cycles of warming and cooling. They're driven by cycles in solar energy output, you know, uh, how much energy comes from the sun. Those go up and down on basically a 22-year cycle. Uh, it expands and contracts a bit, but it's the sunspot cycle. Also, uh, cycles in solar magnetic wind output. And the reason that that's relevant is that it modulates the influx of cosmic rays into our atmosphere, and those cosmic rays modulate the formation of clouds, and clouds modulate temperature on the Earth. So all those things are connected. But then also there are uh, ocean currents that go in cycles, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the Pacific Multidecadal Oscillation, the Atlantic uh, Oscillation, uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, these periodicities running anywhere from about uh, five or six years, fairly rapid El Nino Oscillation that can instead wait to as much as oh, 15 or 20 years, to 30 and, and 60 years. There are some other cycles that uh, run periodicities of about 500 years, about 1,500 years, and uh, uh, oh, the Milankovitch cycles that depend on the tilt of the Earth toward the sun, which changes over time, with an apparent periodicity of hundreds of thousands of years. Let me interrupt on that one, because this tilting thing, and I, I've read a little bit about this. I mean, we're talking something that's almost impossible to measure, 
yet you can see the affect pretty clearly in the climate patterns and weather change, correct? Well, I'm not sure that I would say pretty clearly. Okay. <laughs> All of this stuff is extremely conditioned by the recognition that prior to the 16th century, nobody had a thermometer anywhere. There is that. <laughs> and prior to the prior to the mid 20th century, there were not thermometers spread over most of the world, and even today the location of thermometers, the actual number of thermometers used to give us the data about so-called global average temperature is incredibly small and actually measures temperature in an area, a combined area that might be a, a few square miles Goodness. as opposed to the millions of square miles of the planet. So it's, it's hardly representative. What we have in terms of the best information for global average temperature, we've only had uh, use of since 1979, and that is microwave sounding units on uh, satellites of NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Those measure temperature indirectly by actually sensing the frequency of vibration of molecules in the atmosphere. Those measure temperature at all altitudes, all longitudes, all latitudes, 24-7, 365. This is the best we've got. Those tell us that since 1979, global average temperature has been rising on an average of about 0.13 degree Celsius per decade, whereas the computer climate models on which the alarmists depend tell us that it should have been rising by uh, something in the neighborhood of three-tenths of a degree Celsius, you know, 0 0.3. But when we go farther back in time, we're, we're stuck with all kinds of proxies of temperature, tree ring thicknesses, the composition of gases in glacial ice, the rate of formation of stalactites and stalagmites, all sorts of things. And the problem with those is that all of those are also affected by factors other than temperature. So... We're always having to say, well, maybe, sort of, <laughs> when we go to paleo temperature. Paleo, you sound like uh, my doctor. Well, maybe this is the cause. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, really, honestly, our knowledge on these things is is very, very limited. It's a, it's a humbling thing for us, and it really drives me back to, uh, well, an infinitely wise God designed, an infinitely powerful God created and an infinitely faithful God sustains his world to his glory and to the benefit of his creatures. And therefore, frankly, uh, I have a hard time getting extremely alarmed about anything that seems to be going on around us. Since you have segued there, let me ask you the question where Paul speaks about the creation groans. Yeah. And we do have, you know, Christ's words about depending on your eschatological uh, viewpoint framework, birth pangs and earthquakes. And, you know, so it seems as though from the fall of man, I say we're fallen creatures in a fallen context, that this thing is not going to get better and better. Human nature is not getting better and better. Our environment is not getting And so in a sense, we are contributing as sinners in a broken world. But to what extent, backing from a theological standpoint, to what extent does this really matter? I mean, we acknowledge that we live as sinners in a sinful, you know, broken place. Um, yeah. But is that our job to try to, uh, you know, somehow 
run around and wave our arms and wind uh, energy as opposed to fossil fuels to solve this <laughs> this problem? Yeah. Well, you know, to make the jump from the theological responsibilities we have over the earth to the embrace of this or that specific technology, right. that's a really big jump. <laughs> and, and there are all kinds of physics, uh, chemistry, engineering, uh, technical and economic questions that need to come into that sort of thing. But on the more sort of theological and principial level, uh, I've addressed that actually in a, a short booklet that I wrote called The Cosmic Consequences of Christ's Crosswork. And there I discuss how uh, Jesus came not just simply to save individual souls, but also, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, to which you were referring, and in Colossians chapter 1, to reconcile the whole creation, the whole ktesis is the Greek word, mm -hmm. uh, to God through his uh, work on the cross and through his resurrection. And so he also brings us into that work, just as we have the work of spreading the gospel uh, for the salvation of souls, even though Christ is the Savior, nonetheless, Paul could tell Timothy that if he faithfully preached the, the truth from the scriptures, he would save himself and others. Uh, so also, in terms of Christ's reversing the effects of the curse, I believe that we as human beings called to worship God in everything that we do, including our farming, our industrial activity, our arts, and everything else, we are actually called to participate in the reversal of the effects of the curse. And I think there's some fairly clear ways that we can illustrate that. For instance, human life expectancy at birth through pretty much all of human history from shortly after the flood of Noah's day until the uh, industrial revolution beginning in the mid 18th century was about 27 or 28 years. Today, around the world, it averages right around about 70 years. In advanced countries, about 80 years. And even in developing countries, it averages about 65 years. I think that's fabulous. I think that's an indication of some of the reversal of the effects of the curse. Uh, there are other things that we can point to as well. By human management of the earth, we're able to reduce the harm done by a variety of different natural disasters, we might call them. For example, human mortality rates in response to uh, natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, floods, tsunamis, things of that nature. Uh, human mortality rates in response to natural disasters have fallen by over 98% since the year 1900. I think wow. that's amazing. You know, disease, uh, premature death have dropped dramatically for my, mankind. Extreme poverty has fallen from the vast majority of humanity to now only around about 12%. Uh, and it was at about 50% just as recently as about 1990. So these are, I, I, think, I think, some hopeful things. And uh, my own eschatology as a an optimistic amillennialist or uh, <laughs> sort of a sort of a chastened post-millennialist <laughs> is that I expect that as more and more people come to know Christ, and as a former professor of church history, I can tell you the the growth of the church now around the world is more rapid than anything in all of church history. Uh, as more and more people are reconciled to God through Christ, 
learn to think God's thoughts after him, learn to conduct their lives in a godly way, I do believe that we can see lots of improvements. Will we reach perfection? No, 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 no. Uh, that's going to happen only when Christ comes back. But I think that we can we can see some great improvements between now and then. One of the things that I see in the media and I hear some of our, especially younger men and women, who are growing up in a context where climate change, global warming, recycling, uh, greenhouse gases, uh, fossil fuels are evil. How much impact are we really having driving an SUV versus a Prius? How how much are we really affecting by recycling plastic that, oh, by the way, has to be burned and that takes energy and then it's got to be repurposed, which takes energy. I mean, some of these things seem to me a fool's errand that makes us feel good but really has, does it have any impact on this global footprint? Let's start with the the first illustration that you brought of the the SUV versus the Prius. Uh, A few years ago, a couple of, I believe they were Norwegian, might've been Swedish scientists, set about to measure the life cycle impact of a Prius versus a Hummer in terms of carbon dioxide emissions (laughs) from everything that went into making them, to using them, to finally disposing of them. And to their enormous shock and chagrin, they found that the Hummer was probably better than the Prius. (laughs) 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 Some things can really surprise us in life. Uh, but uh, you mentioned some uh, issues about batteries and just how, you know, from mining all the various uh, chemicals that go into making them, transporting them, refining them, transporting the refined product to the United States or elsewhere, turning them into batteries, carrying them in the cars to run the cars, all of those different things. And then, of course, disposing of these. And we've got a lot of toxic chemicals in them. Turns out battery-driven cars are probably far worse for the environment than cars run on petroleum products, uh, gasoline and diesel. And if I can interrupt, as a former auto mechanic, you know, fuel efficiency, you mentioned gains in, you know, uh, survivability of hurricanes and and natural disasters. Uh, Fuel efficiency and fuel injection are cars is extraordinary compared to what it was in the 70s and the byproduct coming out the tailpipe is, is right. far cleaner. And it's like none of this ever enters the conversation. <laughs> yeah. The energy content of a tank full of gasoline in a car is many times more than the energy content of a car battery weighing the same thing as that tank full. Wow. Uh, you know, I used to live in South Florida. And of course, we would get hurricanes there, and occasionally they would be strong enough and directed in such a way as to as to result in orders to evacuate. Well, if you're driving an electric vehicle that has a range without any air conditioning or <laughs> heating miles. or anything else on it of about 150 miles, and you live in South Florida and you need to get to the Georgia line, you're you know, going to die. Some miles away, <laughs> you're just going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you're not getting out. And then uh, your battery's going to pollute the water. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and, and not to make light of it, but how do we, uh, and this is one of the things where they say scientists say, or scientists agree. And of course, in the popular media, if you or another person ask a question, uh, forget just flat out disagreeing or debating, but ask a question, isn't the notion of science that these are theories 
and we have to look at them over time and we have to bring new data to bear and new yeah. models to bear and not jump yeah. to some conclusion because how how many times have we been right historically about any kind of prediction like this well uh if anyone has read thomas kuhn's really remarkable book the structure of scientific revolutions which came out in the late 1950s and was revised in the early 60s anyone who's read that knows that huge reversals of pretty well unanimous positions in science have happened over and over and over again. And if anything, they happen more frequently in recent decades than they did in the past, simply because our ability to to discover things, our ability to do research has increased, has accelerated. For example, in medicine, the vast majority of health professionals believed that stomach ulcers were caused primarily by tension uh, or stress and eating highly spicy foods, uh, acidic foods. A few people had the idea that maybe they were caused by a bacterium instead, and that was laughed at for decades until two Australian <laughs> physicians actually prepared a concoction of the bacteria that they suspected. One of them drank it and got a whopping ulcer overnight. And ultimately, those two guys won the Nobel Prize in medicine for proving that, in fact, the vast majority of ulcers are caused instead by this bacterium, not by stress or spicy foods. Uh, that's just one example of many uh, where science and scientific reversals happen. And that's one of the reasons I think we should always be awfully cautious about embracing even widespread ideas. You know, the, the notion, for instance, that, okay, 97% of all scientists or of all climate scientists or of all publishing climate scientists, <laughs> however we might want to <laughs> restrict the figure, 97% agree that uh, global warming is real, that uh, it's primarily man-made and that it's dangerous and that it would be wise for us to spend trillions of dollars trying to, to uh, reduce it. That's called consensus. And consensus is not a scientific value. Uh, consensus is a political value. Say that again, because this to me, it, this is the issue. It is pretty crucial. Yeah. Consensus is not a scientific value. It's a political value. If you want to know who won the last election, you count votes. If you want to know how much CO2 warms the atmosphere, you don't count votes. You don't count how many people think this or that or another thing. You do the hard physics, chemistry, and real-world observations to try to calculate it. And you do it over and over and over again. You keep testing and testing and testing and narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down. That's science. There's One of my favorite things in all of science is a, a brief uh, video clip of the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman discussing what he calls the key to science. Anybody can find this easily. Just Google for Feynman. That's F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. -N, Feynman, key to science. And in it, he says, look, when we want to try to figure out how, how something in the world works, when we look for a, a scientific law, the first thing we do is we guess. <laughs> And he says, you, you laugh, you think that's not very scientific, but that's exactly what we do, we guess. And then we make a bunch of predictions of what we ought to observe in the real world, whether in the laboratory or outside, if our guess is right. Then we compare those predictions with actual observations in the real world or the laboratory. And if those observations contradict our predictions, 
then our guess is wrong. And it doesn't matter how smart we are or how beautiful our guess is. I would add this to what Feynman said, or how many people agree with us. If the observations contradict the predictions, then the guess is wrong. Well, that's what we find in terms of the predictions of rapid, dangerous global warming from human emissions of CO2. The computer climate models predict two to three times as much warming as actually observed over the relevant period. And we cannot rule out natural causes for at least some, possibly even all of that warming. Therefore, the theory on which the, the models are based, the theory represented in the models, is wrong. So let's bring it back home because you and I can have a great conversation about these things. <laughs> but <laughs> but help the person who's listening who says, you know, I hear all this. I'm afraid to say anything negative about this precious little Greta Thunberg. I mean, I was mentioning earlier on our open about how the Duke of Sussex now is, Harry, is praising Greta Thunberg for her work. And, uh, you know, but more to the point, she's become a global sensation because she's a 16 year old uh, screaming about climate change. And it's all about money and economics. And if you don't do something, uh, you know, I'm not in school because you're killing the planet. Well, you know, it, it spins people up and then Christians of all people feel like we can't say, wait a minute. Um, yeah. Let, let's let's bring these down one at a time. What actually are we doing? I mean, you and I both want clean water. We both want, you know, Absolutely. Don't, don't throw your sure. trash in an open watershed area. Put it in a proper landfill. I mean, this is common sense, not environmental worship. Um, right. But, but how do you help? the average man or woman who get hit with these things and they get shamed for driving an SUV versus a Tesla or a Prius. How do we navigate it, Calvin? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul said, test all things, hold fast what is good, First Thessalonians 5.21. And what we need is an awful lot of wisdom, a lot of uh, an awful lot of knowledge to do that kind of testing. That's frankly, why I started the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, to bring together the insights of a large number of scholars to help ordinary folks to think through these issues. So that's why we have a website with hundreds of articles at it, cornwallalliance.org. Hundreds of articles, a large number of major studies. We've produced a number of videos, uh, educational videos on these things that are on our YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And of course, we have an active Facebook page as well. But I think really, you know, there's a need for so much more learning than we can do in one podcast. Uh, I appreciate your letting me just recommend one particular source on this, and that is a a short book by Dr. Roy Spencer. Uh, Roy is actually one of the world's leading climate scientists. He's also on our board. He's a senior fellow of the Cornwall Alliance, and he's written a short book called Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People. And I think really it's uh, one of the best ways to be introduced to this. It's available at our uh, at our online shop at CornwallAlliance.org. And, and by the way, folks, as, as always, we'll have this in the show notes. So we'll have links to to a, a Calvin's Great. site, and we'll have links to the book. But keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I, I think this is just so important for people to really learn. There's also a a major paper on that site called A Call to Truth, Prudence, and Protection of the Poor 2014. The case against harmful climate uh, and energy policies gets stronger. 
And that is by uh, a major environmental economist, Dr. Cornelis Van Kooten of the University of Victoria, and a uh, climatologist, Dr. David Legates, both of those senior fellows with the Cornwall Alliance. And it makes the case uh, for the scientific evidence that global warming by human activity is real, but rather small, certainly not highly dangerous, and that the attempt to drastically change our, you know, the world's whole energy infrastructure to reduce global warming would be far more harmful than helpful, especially to the world's poor. And and so that's something that people can read for free on our website. Uh, just go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the landmark documents tab, and scroll down till you see a call to truth, prudence, and protection of the poor 2014. Well, with that, and since you already set it up that we can't solve it in one podcast, you'll have to come back, okay? Well, thanks very much, Michael. And uh, let me just close by saying that my chief concern in all of this, the thing that motivates me more than anything else, is my care that the poor around the world not be trapped in poverty uh, for generations to come by climate and energy policies driven by false fears that would result in depriving them of the abundant, affordable, reliable energy, especially in the form of electricity, that is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping them out of poverty. Dr. Calvin Beister, thank you for your time. Thank you for your ministry and uh, blessings on uh, how God continues to use you, my friend. Well, it is my privilege and delight to have my good friend, Dr. Ron Rhodes, back on the podcast. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for your time. Always a pleasure, Michael. Uh, For those who have not yet heard of you, I mean, I talk about you all the time. I don't know where they are. Dr. Rhodes is the president of Reasoning from the Scriptures. He is the author of 60 books and counting with millions of these books now in print. He holds a THM and THD degree from the Dallas Theological Seminary, where he also teaches on occasion apologetics and other subjects. He's a keynote speaker at conferences around the U.S. and regularly addresses current issues in the national media. He is a frequently featured guest on numerous uh, radio outlets uh, in the market, with Janet Partial being one of them. But we've had a a longtime friendship and uh, dating back to Dallas days. We lived on the same street when I was doing the THM at Dallas and you were doing the THD. Well, that's right. I remember those years very clearly. I remember I used to go out and mow my lawn. Then you'd come by the next day and you'd borrow my lawnmower and mow your lawn. And, you know, we were all living in poverty, <laughs> uh, you know, and it was just the most amazing time. And my years at Dallas Seminary were among the very best. I mean, they were just seven awesome years. And I look back on those years as years of training for what I'm doing today. And so I'm really kind of a a product of those seven years at Dallas Theological Seminary. Let's jump into this conversation. So Democrat, Republic, whatever side of the coin people want to be on, we've got this squad. We've got this 16-year-old girl named Greta Thunberg, who has taken the environmental activist by storm, pun intended. She's traveling around all upset and screaming and yelling and crying about global warming and climate change. And you and I have the same concern for our planet. You and I have the same concern that people don't necessarily believe everything they hear. So let's start this, Ron, with let's talk about climate change at the broad level. And then let's work our way down to how do we 
help Christians uh, engage this issue in a kind, truthful way uh, when there's so much uh, misinformation going on out there. Well, you know, it's making the headlines everywhere. Uh, We read about plants and flowers and bushes flowering early each year due to increased heat. Allegedly, there are birds and animals and insects that are going much further north than they've ever been before. Why? Because of alleged global warming. We're told that the sea level is rising and that the glaciers are melting and that the polar bears are in danger of dying off. And some of it gets rather sensational with claims that weather patterns are not just changing but will get much worse in the years to come. And NASA data is often cited, which allegedly proves a spike in temperature uh, in recent times. Also, allegedly, there are thousands of people who are dying because of the heat waves in different parts of the world. And, And it's hotter, allegedly, now than it was before. And so, I mean, these are all very real concerns. But as you know, Christians are divided on this issue. Some Christians hop on the bandwagon, and they do so in an undiscerning way, not realizing that they're actually joining up with a number of people who hold a rather anti-Christian worldview. Many are evolutionists and naturalists, for example. Um, But other Christians are a little bit more hesitant. It's not that these other Christians are not concerned about the environment. It's not that they're unconcerned about the possibility of global warming or climate change. But they want to, number one, make sure that the evidence really proves that there's an issue that we need to deal with. And then secondly, we need to watch out for balance. And here's what we mean by balance. If you've got limited resources on planet Earth, do you want to spend them all in one place? For example, uh, dealing with the alleged change in climate when some of our best scientists say that it doesn't even exist. Do we really want to have a misplaced focus where we ignore the poor people of the world and ignore taking care of their, their uh, water needs, their infrastructure problems because they can't get water and medicine very easily where they live? There's just a lot of that kind of stuff that's being ignored. And so for that reason, I think that as a Christian who cares not just for the environment, but who also wants to take care of the world as a good steward, We have to ask all the hard questions, not just the ones that deal with alleged climate change. And so uh, as a Christian, I approach this from the standpoint of, number one, I do examine what's being said. But number two, I want real hardcore evidence for what's being said instead of just emotionally charged statements that I'm seeing in the media. And then number three, I test everything that I hear in the media Uh, against the backdrop of what I know from Scripture, just like the Bereans do in Acts 17. In Acts 17, the Bereans tested everything the Apostle Paul said against Scripture. And I say that unapologetically. The Scriptures are the grid through which I see reality. It is the lens through which I look into the world and interpret the world around me. And so that's kind of my, uh, my, my governing worldview It's not my position, Michael, that um, science and the Bible are at odds with each other. I think that if you interpret uh, science as being human opinions about nature, and if you interpret theology as human opinions about God's Word, then very clearly science and theology can conflict. But I don't think God's world of nature nor his revelation in Scripture conflict. 
And, uh, you know, that's really how I see this, this, uh, this conflict between science and the Bible, including the issue in regard to the environment. I'm always a learner. Let me ask some kind of not rapid fire, but quick questions. Do you think global warming is real? I think it's hard to prove that it's real. Some people have said that Christians, especially conservative Christians like you and me, are science deniers or truth deniers right. because some of us have undermined this idea that there's a real problem to deal with in terms of the climate. But here's something to think about. Part of truth and part of science is that the earth naturally heats and cools. We shouldn't deny that fact. And acknowledging that we know that the earth heats and cools from a scientific standpoint gives us more credibility when we're talking to people who don't necessarily agree with us. And I told you that I approach this through a Christian worldview. You know, some of the people that don't have a Christian worldview that deal with the subject talk about how part of the problem is human destruction. Many on the ideological left think that human destruction in terms of abortion and so forth is one of the keys. Uh, and maybe euthanasia as well, and other forms of population control aimed at reducing the numbers of people on planet Earth. I'm sorry, I will never go along with something right, like that because right. God created man in his image. Image bearers are different than a plant or an environment or a temperature. Do you think that humans contribute to, let's just say, for example, the warming cycles, and I've read some things where it's a 30- or 60-year thing. They can go back and show the global temperatures do rise and fall. Of course, important to differentiate weather from climate change, which are two completely different subjects. But when you look at this whole change, let's just say for argument's sake that the Earth does cool and warm at different cycles, is this something that humans are causing? Well, let me answer that this way. I, I think that there's several questions that are involved here and, and several layers of questions. One question is, is the earth warming? Uh, another question you might ask is, is the planet warming since, for example, the mid-1800s? There are a lot of people who say so. But then the most important and the most controversial question is, is that if the planet is warming, is human activity actually causing that warming? So on the one hand, I think it's always possible that global warming could be human-induced in the sense that we're increasing the amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and carbon dioxide and methane and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's also entirely possible, even likely, that the current global warming trend is a result of solar cycles, right. such that there is a variation in the output of energy from the sun, which is documented, or maybe some third or fourth possibility we don't fully understand yet. We do know that the Earth goes through warming and cooling trends, and it's natural for that to happen. God built the Earth that way, and apparently God built the Earth that way because the Earth needs to have that happen in order for the Earth to function properly. So we may not understand all his reasons for doing it, but I think just given that fact alone makes me question you know, how much human beings have been involved in this, because if it's doing it anyway then how can we have empirical proof to contradict that idea? And let me interrupt and ask this. That being said, we are fallen creatures in a fallen context. And Paul reminds us that the earth groans. And at least my study on that is that, you know, we are in a fallen body. Our bodies are getting older. Our health is, you know, changing as we age. Our eyesight changes. Is it wrong to conclude the earth, too, is a degrading environment? No, in fact, uh, I, one of my books that I've written on is on creationism versus evolution. 
And I talk a lot about entropy. You know, someone once came up to me and said, Ron, your hair is turning gray and it's thinning. And I said, yes, we call that entropy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is running down, including you, Michael. You're running down. Your body's running down. I'm running down. And planet Earth is running down. And the sun is running down in the sense that one day, if uninterrupted, it will burn out. I mean, should the Lord tarry in his coming, which I don't think he will, but, you know, hypothetically, if he did tarry in his coming – then one day the sun would simply burn out and, and experience what they call a heat death. So, yeah, the, the universe is running down. And one of the things that we read about in Scripture in Romans 8 is that the creation is crying out in futility and it's groaning. And that groaning will not be relieved until that future time when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. You talk about global warming. There, there is a coming a time in which God will destroy the present earth and the entire universe by fire that's the ultimate global you know, warming, and create a new heavens and a new earth. And I know that there are uh, non-Christians who will utterly laugh at this statement, but it is nevertheless true scripturally that this earth as it is is not our ultimate home. Amen. This earth as it is right now is not our ultimate home. The new earth is. And if I might put it in a different vernacular, we're going to live in resurrection bodies on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe. That's the promise that's given to those who trust in Christ. And that just helps you to temper a little bit how you interpret what's going on today uh, in terms of whether or not we're experiencing global warming or climate change. Now, we do know, Michael, from a prophetic standpoint that during this future time that precedes the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on in the cosmic realm, a lot of stuff like earthquakes and, you know, stars falling from the heavens, which I take to be meteors or asteroids, and there's going to be climactic upset and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's part of the end times. But you and I are talking about the present moment, and we're talking about whether we should spend limited human resources on a problem that we're not sure even exists. Mm. And even if it does exist, should we deal that with that problem to the exclusion of the other problems which people are presently ignoring, like feeding the poor and getting water to them and taking care of uh, medical needs and so forth? So even if you did acknowledge that this existed, um, what you want to do is to be balanced and be moderate and, and, and try to deal with all the different issues that we're dealing with. Hey, could I give you a quick rabbit trail? Of course. You know, God did tell us in Scripture that we are to be involved in ruling the creation. That's one of the things that God told us in Genesis yes. 128. And God said that right after God created man in his image. Now, the Hebrew word used for image was a word that was often used among ancient kings who would conquer a territory, and then he would put an image of himself in that territory to represent the sovereign king's sovereignty over this new territory. So that's the same word used when it says that God created man in his image. You see, God is the ultimate ruler. You and I are simply vice regents enforcing his reign on planet Earth. We represent his ultimate reign on planet Earth. Now, if you want to understand something about the reign of God and, and what's involved in God's kind of a kingdom, we'll look at Jesus. When he was on the earth, and Jesus taught us a whole lot about what God's kingdom is like and what the priorities are, and those priorities include feeding the poor, helping the disenfranchised, 
helping those who are squashed by the powers that be in the world, those who are down and despondent because they know that they are spiritual worms before God. Mm. You see, the kingdom of God reaches out to all of those people. And so, you know, I'm often hearing about how Christians, because they're supposed to exercise dominion over creation, that we're supposed to deal with this issue of uh, climate uh, change and so forth. Well, I'm calling for balance. If you really want to represent God's kingdom rule on this planet, deal with the whole picture, including helping the disenfranchised and the poor and all the other problems that exist on this planet that many Christians have a tendency to ignore. You know, Cindy and I went through years of infertility, and then we adopted. And people would look at us and say, oh, you know, that's so great that you adopted these kids. And our view wasn't altruism or taking a child out of an impoverished situation and bringing them into our home. Our view was we wanted four children, and we couldn't have them. And so we adopted them. And we watched this younger generation for good reason. They adopt children from all over the world. But we often tell them when they ask our opinion, we go, These aren't puppies, number one. These are people. And this is not altruism or social work. You are making a family. And it's not some political statement. But all that to say, you can be anti-abortion and passive when it comes to adoption. Or you can be, you know, work with people in orphanages. We have friends. We we ourselves work around the world in a number of orphanages with a friend of ours, Mike Doris at Orphan Outreach. And they're doing phenomenal work. And that work is far more, uh, let's say, a priority, at least to Cindy and me, than worrying about do we get the right gas mileage or should we drive a Prius or a battery-powered car. But again, it goes back to moral relativism, right? Well, it does. And, And what you've touched on is so critically important here because that's really reflecting my own opinion in this matter. And that is that we need to deal with the stuff that that each one of us can deal with. Each one of us have a circle of influence. Yes. And each one of us can make a difference. I heard one theologian say that every person who throws a pebble into a pond causes many ripples. And, of course, the point that he's making there is that every person can contribute and make some kind of a difference. But each person also operates within the sphere of his own influence. And that is to say people in your community – people in your country. Um, There are needs that need to be met. And uh, just as you have reached out in terms of adoption and these other things that you've talked about, other Christians have gotten involved in a number of other things, whether it's supporting children through a missionary organization or a ministry organization that helps young children overseas, or whether it's through missions downtown, where you go down and participate in, uh, you know, a Bible study or, or leading worship or whether it's going down and witnessing on the beach, or whatever it is. Every person has that ability to make a difference. But that's a whole lot different than having a situation in which tons of people are being urged to contribute massive amounts of money and using a tremendous amount of limited resources in order to deal with the problem that we're not even absolutely sure exists. And even, let's say, it exists the efforts, are they making a difference? Let's go back to science for a moment. Let's say science is a solution. How can you measure something as massive as all the different algorithms and all the different issues of so-called climate change and global warming? Goodness, how do you measure to know that what you're doing is making a difference? Well, now that's the question. And not only that, but how much measurement is enough measurement? If I was wanting to make a real thorough study of this, I would really want to be around here for a couple of thousand years 
and trace with real scientific instrumentation what's been going on for the last couple of thousand years. But simply tracing what's been going on since, you know, limited records that we have from the 1800s up until the present, you know, all the while recognizing that the earth naturally warms and cools and goes through various cycles. How do you know definitively from scientific measurements that that's caused by human causality as opposed to, for example, the natural cycles that the earth goes through or even the human futility in which creation is groaning? that you brought up just a while ago. How do we know that it's not that? And I'm not saying that we should just turn a cold eye toward all of this. You know, there's always the possibility that there could be some human involvement in, in some of the stuff with all the emissions that are taking place. But number one, the evidence is not solid. And number two, don't do that to the exclusion of the stuff that we know needs to be done on this earth, which I keep going back to is helping the poor and the impoverished and the hungry and the thirsty. You know, when Christ comes again at the second coming, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and he's judging the nations, do you remember what he said about his basis of judgment? Mm. How people treat Christ's brothers, feeding them mm -hmm. and giving them food and water and clothing and visiting them in prison and all of these kinds of things. And when you understand the priorities of God's kingdom in terms of reaching out to the disenfranchised and those who are hurting, that is a whole lot more human-oriented than the earth orientation of many of today's people who are talking about climate. And I think that's a significant difference. You know, one is human oriented, the other is, is yep. earth oriented. Yep. Oh, and by the way, one other thing I might mention to you, it's not just naturalists and secularists who are pounding this thing. Those affiliated with the New Age movement are also pounding this very heavily. I'm not sure how much you're aware of this, Michael, but within the New Age movement, it is believed that the earth is the physical body of a spiritual being known as the earth logos. Have you ever heard that before? I have not. I have not. I knew Sedona was interesting, but I didn't know how interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those who don't know, Sedona is interesting because it allegedly has vortex zones. And vortex zones is where allegedly the veil between this world and the next is very thin. Right. Now, I don't agree with that, by the way. But that's what New Agers think. But the fact is, is that many New Agers think that the Earth is the physical body of a spiritual being known as the Earth Logos. Wow. And that mankind can be kind of like a cancer on this body. And so I've heard far too many people who say that it's mainly secularists and naturalists who are arguing for this climate control and climate change. But really, one of the largest promoters of this idea are people within the New Age movement. I mean, they are absolutely green to the core. Let's go back to your earlier comment about spheres of influence, what I call it, is that we can get amped up watching, and I don't mean to align with a party, but we can get amped up watching the Democrats talk for sustainability and ending air conditioning and ending air travel and you know getting rid of all fossil fuels and so forth and so on, or this young uh, teen Swedish teenager uh, who, for whatever reason, I was just looking, uh, they're painting a mural of her near Times Square or something on a wall. I mean, this is astonishing. But we get amped up with this and, and engaged in this when we go back to, okay, what's your sphere of influence? Uh, I have a dear friend who's been teaching ESL classes for years, very quietly in some pretty sketchy areas of Nashville. Cindy is involved, as I mentioned, with orphan care around the world, with orphanages, both financially as well as her time. We're trying to make disciples in our local churches. We try to share Christ. And we're talking about the image bearer of God, as you mentioned earlier. We're talking about the gospel. And Paul makes this interesting comment, Ron, about 
they worship the created. They worship the creature rather than the yeah. creator. And it, it does seem to me, just for a Christian wake-up call, going, okay, these are important issues. I'm not denying there's climate change and, you know, some heretical, you know, social heretical system that I, I'm a climate denier, which I am technically, because that doesn't matter to me as much as the soul of men and women. And as you rightly said, the sphere of influence each of us has. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, what's going on with this girl is that she's the flavor of the month and she's a metaphor. I hate to, to reduce her to that, but she's basically become a metaphor for a, a much larger movement. And I must tell you that economics are involved. Big money is involved. Politics is involved. And this young girl has become the poster child, basically, for promoting this. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric that we hear is emotionally driven. We see pictures of alleged polar bears dying as the uh, ice caps are shrinking. And then we see pictures of people you know, uh, laying in the street having died from heat exhaustion, allegedly because of global warming and so forth. And some of this was you know, in, in a popular film put out by Al Gore some years ago. And it's emotionally charged. Now, here's something that I want to emphasize, not just to you, Michael, but also to others who may be listening today. Solomon said in Proverbs 18, verse 17, that the one who states his case first seems right mm. until the other comes and examines him. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Mm. And when you look at these emotionally charged videos, when you look at what this you know, young girl is saying, when you look at pictures of polar bears and all this stuff, you know, some people look at that and they say, well, how can you deny that? This must be true. And my emotions bear witness that it must be true. And it may sound true until the other person comes forward and starts to examine the whole theory. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do, because I like to do that with all the issues that we're facing in the world today. I like to come forward and question whether or not this is really legit. Is it really true to say that this is a problem that we're facing? And uh, I personally am one of those truth deniers, according to the secularists and the naturalists. Now, in fact, I'm a truth emphasizer, but they categorize me as a truth denier simply because I deny that this is the problem that they say mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm all about being a good steward of the earth, you know, but what does that mean, Michael? What does it mean to be a good steward of the earth? Does it mean spending a majority of the available limited resources that we have on this planet to take care of a maybe issue while ignoring issues that are already very clearly in our world that people are ignoring? I hate to keep on harping on that, but we've got a major problem in terms of uh, human poverty and human suffering, in terms of starvation, lack of sanitary water, lack of infrastructure so that food and medicine can be delivered. I mean, these are tremendous issues that we face today. And why aren't there poster childs or poster girls focusing on that issue? Mm -hmm. Well, as one of my mentors used to say, Michael, your problem is you're thinking logically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you can hear from my voice, I'm also getting a little bit on my soapbox, but I love it. You know, I, I just hear all this, Michael, and I, I just think that we've lost our focus. We've lost our way. 
And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to be like the Bereans, just to keep on coming back and testing everything against the Scripture. And like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, we hold on to the good, and then we just get rid of everything else. And I, I think that policy is what has kept me um, more balanced. When I test everything against God's Word, that keeps me balanced. And it keeps me from buying into theories that may or may not be true. And frankly, I think a lot of the evidence that's being promoted today for this uh, climate change and so forth is more emotional than factual. Dr. Ron Rhodes, president of Reasoning from the Scriptures. You can find out more about him in our show notes. And if you use your favorite search engine and put R-H-O-D-E-S in the search engine and any topic, you'll likely find a book that Ron has penned that will be a good resource for you uh, to help a friend. Uh, I don't know how many times I have gone online and searched, like, see if Ron's written a book on this topic to share with a friend, uh, easily digestible for all of us. Ron, thanks for your work, your labors, your ministry. I pray you uh, keep pressing on, uh, helping us think clearly. Thank you, Michael, and you do the same. I've always been a big believer in how God has used simple human beings who are weak in themselves, but through Christ are strong to do his work. And when I look at you, that's the kind of person I see. So keep it up. Will do. Thanks, Ron. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.